The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. PFT Live is shut down for the week, as you may know. PFT PM is back because I can only sit in front of a computer for so long and type. I like to communicate. I like to talk. I like to use my hands, as some of you know and as some of you have complained. But it's kind of the Italian way. We talk with our hands and our voices, and that's what I'm going to do for the next half hour. So I'm going to try to keep today's PFT PM to just 30 minutes. Try is the key word. Anytime I've ever said that in the past, I've jinxed myself. I've taken at least an hour. But today we just have a few topics and we have some questions. And we're going to get to all of that starting now. And I want to begin with the franchise tag and the transition tag to a lesser extent. The transition tag isn't as big of a deal because it doesn't get used very often. But the franchise tag and the transition tag have been around for nearly 30 years now. And a lot of people don't understand where it came from. I'm going to try to explain now. Here's a history lesson. I haven't researched this. This all comes from my memory, so there's a chance it's wrong. But I'm pretty confident because I was following the NFL very carefully during the time this came to be, and I understand how it all works. I was a lawyer, so it kind of fits with my mindset, and I was always fascinated by it. I'm going to take you back to 1987. 36 years ago, the NFL had a strike. It was the last strike that resulted in missed games. There was one game missed, three weeks of replacement players, and then the strike ended. Well, when the strike ended, things didn't just go back to the way they were. What happened along the way is the union shut down. The union went away. The NFLPA was gone. When that happens, when the NFLPA shuts down, and they did that during the 2011 lockout, the moment you do that, the NFL loses its ability to have labor rules, workplace requirements for free agency, for maximum salaries, anything that the various teams of the NFL agree to becomes an antitrust violation because these are independent businesses. And that's been established over the years. They're independent businesses. If they come together on their own and agree to prices or payments or whatever, it violates the federal antitrust laws. What saves them as it relates to players is the federal labor law that allows them to negotiate as what's called a multi-employer bargaining unit. So when they have a union relationship that has all the teams on one side and all the players on the other, it's not an antitrust violation. You take away the union, lo and behold, you have antitrust issues. If you try to say, this is the most we're going to pay, this is how free agency is going to work, this is how players are or aren't going to be able to change teams. So that lawsuit was filed in 87 or thereabouts. Reggie White was the lead plaintiff in that litigation. The lawsuit played out. The NFL tried different things to placate the players, to correct the antitrust violations that were happening. There were different types of free agency available. Plan B was popular back in the late 80s and early 90s. That would allow some players every year to move teams if their contracts expired. There were players you protected, and there were players who were left unprotected. They could move teams. Jack Del Rio, for example, was a fairly high-profile Plan B free agent before the current CBA 
came into being. The current CBA, actually the predecessor of the current CBA, was negotiated in 1993. That included this franchise tag concept, franchise tag, transition tag, salary cap. Real free agency, but every team has the ability every year to take one player whose contract had otherwise expired and apply the franchise tag or the transition tag. Franchise tag, if you use it, non-exclusive version, the lower level, it allows another team to talk to the player, maybe sign the player to an offer sheet, and if the player signed to an offer sheet and the current team doesn't accept it, two first-round draft picks are the compensation. And you have to have your next two first-round draft picks. The draft picks assigned to you. The Dolphins, for example, can't talk to any non-exclusive franchise tag players this year because they don't have their first-round draft pick. It was lost as a result of the Sean Payton-Tom Brady tampering episode. The Saints can't do it because they traded theirs away. The other teams can. And that's how it plays out. Now, it doesn't happen very often that a player changes teams that way. What will happen is maybe he gets traded. Jared Allen is an example of a guy who was franchise tagged by the Chiefs. The Vikings traded a first-round pick and a third-round pick for him instead of signing him to an offer sheet. So trades can happen. Trades are, are more likely than a team giving up two first-round picks. And a lot of it depends upon where that first-round pick comes from. I made this point yesterday. The Falcons or the Panthers with a top 10 first-round pick, if they want Lamar Jackson, maybe they work out a trade instead of signing him to an offer sheet because you're giving up a top 10 pick. Whereas there could be a team in the 20s that signs him to an offer sheet, and it doesn't matter that there's a gap a significant gap potentially between a team in the top 10 and a team in the bottom 10, it's still a first-round pick. There's no measurement as to which level it lands. So trades are possible, and sometimes trades are more advantageous for everyone involved. The transition tag, the cousin to the franchise tag, it basically gives a team a right to match with no compensation of any kind. It gets used rarely, but it's still a device that's available if you're a team that just wants to let the player find out what's out there. Go see what your market is, and we reserve the right to match whatever offer is made. Now, the problem is you could have a team that crafts an offer a certain way that makes it difficult, if not impossible, to match from a cap standpoint or whatever. And if you may remember, back in 2006, the Seahawks and the Vikings got into a back and forth over Steve Hutchinson and then Nate Burleson. The Vikings used... A tr- a, a, an offer sheet with a poison pill under the transition tag to get Steve Hutchinson away from the Seahawks. And then the Seahawks turned around and did the same thing to the Vikings. And that got, that, that, that got shut down pretty quickly because despite the freedoms that are otherwise available to teams within the confines of the CBA, from time to time, the league doesn't look kindly on teams being creative and potentially upsetting the apple cart and creating real competition that that would maybe cause teams to spend too much money. And yes, it is collusion, but it also absolutely happens. So bottom line, franchise tag, transition tag. Every team has one or the other every year. Can't do both, can do one or the other. It applies to a guy who's going to become a free agent and there's a two-week window for using it. Now, we've said in the past, the two-week window doesn't matter. All that matters is the deadline. It's a deadline-driven business. March 7, 4 p.m. Eastern, that's the last moment to use it. However, with all that said, sometimes teams will do it strategically because we got this combine coming up next week in Indianapolis. That's where tampering reaches a fever pitch. If you're a team that 
is kind of on the fence about whether or not to use a franchise tag on a guy, if you decide to do it and you plant that flag before Indy, it's a message to any other teams out there that they're wasting their time. If they try to put ideas in the agent's head about how much money is going to be available in free agency, everybody knows players are going to be tagged. And, and I think sometimes teams do it before they fully focus on the scouting combine so they don't get themselves into a spot where maybe they're up against the deadline and maybe they screw something up. I mean, there's always a chance when you get up against that final deadline, there's going to be some mistake. We've seen examples like that over the course of the years. If you're going to do it and you know you're going to do it, just go ahead and do it. And once you do it, you can still negotiate long-term contract with the player. You have until July 15. After July 15, he can only sign a one-year deal. And remember this, once a guy's been franchise tagged, he's not under contract. He's not required to show up for anything. And we've seen players over the years show up as late as just before week one and get the full amount of their franchise tender. Once they accept it, they get it, and it's fully guaranteed. The only risk in not accepting it is that it can be rescinded. And we've seen that happen three times in the last 20 years. Jeremiah Trotter of the Eagles, Andy Reid, at the time stripped it in June, and he signed with Washington. Corey Simon in 95. 95, 2005. I'm getting my decades, not just years, but my. De- I went in the business in 95. Corey Simon in 2005 with the Eagles again. Franchise tag was rescinded. He hadn't accepted it. It happened in September. He went to the Colts. His career fizzled out after that. And then Josh Norman, 2016, 2016, franchise tag by the Panthers, rescinded in April. Washington signed him. So it happens rarely, but it can happen. If you don't accept it and you'll see a lot of guys rush to accept it, they take the money, they take the bird in the hand, even though they'd rather have the long term contract and the generational pay that goes with it. You know, for for some of these guys, especially lower round draft picks, man, you offer them 15, 16, 17 million for one year. They're not going to say no to it. and They're not going to put it at risk by not accepting it. So there's your primer on the franchise tag, the transition tag, where it came from, what it means and how it all plays out. Bottom line is. From today through March 7, 4 p.m. Eastern, any team can do it. Lamar Jackson, the biggest name. Others who are likely to be tagged. I was told earlier today, Deron Payne of the Commanders, 99.9% chance he gets tagged. Josh Jacobs could get tagged. Tony Pollard could get tagged. And we know that either Daniel Jones or Saquon Barkley will get tagged. It's now pointing toward Daniel Jones in New York. $32 million for him on a one-year deal. But again, it keeps him from going to the open market. Derek Carr has been on the open market for a week. Derek Carr got a four-week head start on free agency when the Raiders cut him the day before his presence on the roster would have resulted in $40.4 million in salary guarantees. Now, the problem for Carr, and there's only so much engineering of the situation an agent can do, the problem for Carr is this has moved so slowly that I think interested teams are going to wait to see what other options they have before they commit to Carr. And maybe the right play for Carr would have been, could have been, or should have been to come out of the gates and say, look, I'm making my decision by, what's today, 21st? I'm making my decision by Friday, February 24th. Anybody who's interested, step right up. Anybody who wants in, let's go. Make your best offers. I reserve the right to come visit with you. Or you have your people come see me. I mean, if Deshaun Watson was able to pull that off last year with 20-plus civil lawsuits pending, Derek Carr should be able to do it as well. And maybe he tried, and maybe just no one was interested. Because the reality is, by taking your time, and Carr's brother David said on NFL Network, 
on Monday night. It's going to be a long process. Well, yeah. Why would a team that may be able to get some other quarterback commit to Carr until that team knows, number one, the other quarterback is going to be available, and number two, this is what it's going to cost to get him, either via free agency or trade. And the Jets are the best example. Okay, Carr went to visit the Jets, and everything coming out of the interaction is positive. Everybody loves each other. That's great. Well, he doesn't have a contract. You know why he doesn't have a contract? Jets are waiting to see what Aaron Rodgers does when he emerges from that meat locker he's been hiding in, if he's even in it now. God forbid we suggest he's in it incorrectly and then get called out on McAfee's show. But he's made it clear he's going to go to this darkness retreat and, and seek enlightenment, no pun intended, in the darkness. But if you're the Jets, you want to wait and see because we don't know what it's going to take to get him from the Packers. We don't know how much they're going to want. If they truly are done with him, maybe they aren't going to want multiple first-round picks. Maybe we can work out a reasonable deal. Maybe we'll gladly take on $60 million, knowing that he may retire after only one year, but at least we get one year with Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers, even at 39, better than Derek Carr. Look, Derek Carr's not a franchise quarterback, and that's okay. Franchise quarterbacks are more likely to win Super Bowls, but you can still win with a guy who isn't among the best of the best. You can win with Kirk Cousins. You can win with a Derek Carr. And if you're a team that is struggling to be relevant, Derek Carr makes you relevant. And the Jets may be good enough defensively and good enough around Derek Carr that they don't need Aaron Rodgers. They don't need a franchise quarterback. But still, before you make the decision, if you're the Jets, you just want to know. If nothing else... You can use that as leverage to get Derek Carr to do a better deal. If Derek Carr emerged from the meeting with the Saints and the Jets and whoever else he talks to, believing that he wants to go to the Jets, and the Jets start saying, well, you know, we kind of got a shot to get Aaron Rodgers. Maybe Derek Carr softens his demands a little bit in order to get that spot, in order to get the Jets to not sign, trade for, and pay Aaron Rodgers. So bottom line is this. Head start that Derek Carr got on free agency, I think it's already evaporated. It's not moving quickly enough for him to get the full advantage of it, and it very well could be that the teams weren't willing to jump on the idea that we got to go commit to Derek Carr now before we know what else is out there. And by next week, when everyone's in Indy, that's when the teams who are looking for veteran quarterbacks will know who and who isn't going to be available pending the final application of the franchise tags March 7 but you know we assume the Ravens are going to do it with Lamar Jackson we assume the Giants are going to sign Daniel Jones or do it with him but if there won't be any misunderstanding as to who's available and there'll be a ballpark of what it's going to take to get them from a dollars and cents standpoint and I think Derek Carr despite getting to the market four weeks before anyone else is in that that cluster of guys that will be available to any team out there that is looking for help at the most important position on the field. All right, non-football issue, but of significant interest to the folks who follow the NFL. And I know this because we can track our traffic in real time. And this Michael Irvin thing that came up during Super Bowl week has generated a significant amount of interest at ProFootballTalk.com. And I think one of the reasons is it's one of my sweet spots, one of my only sweet spots, frankly, where I can pull together my legal experience and my football experience and explain to people what really happens when someone files a civil lawsuit and what it all means. Let's go back to the Tuesday of Super Bowl week. That's when we found out out of the blue 
that NFL Network had pulled Michael Irvin off the air because of some vague accusation of misconduct that had been made against him. Still don't know what it was. Still don't know what it is. And I know this, Michael Irvin, in my opinion, did himself no favors by talking to Michael Gelkin of the Dallas Morning News, going on 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, and admitting he'd been drinking and making it clear with what he said that he doesn't really remember what happened, but he didn't think it was anything significant, didn't think it was anything problematic. Well, the problem is the other person did. Now, by the end of the week, Irvin files in Texas, in state court in Texas, a $100 million lawsuit against Marriott, the owner of the hotel where this occurred, and the unnamed employee, and it turned out it was an employee of the Marriott Hotel that made the accusation against Michael Irvin. So this is real now. And, hey, I say all the time, if you're wrongfully accused of something, you need to shout it from the rooftops that you've been wrongfully accused. And filing a major lawsuit against the people who have accused you, alleging that they've engaged in defamation of your character and they're basically trying to take down your career and that all of this is false, if it really is a false accusation, that's consistent with how an innocent person would behave. Now, that sets aside that I still continue to believe it wasn't a good idea for Michael Irvin to talk about it publicly, but the action of filing that lawsuit is what I would expect somebody who was wrongfully accused to do. So one of the first things I learned in law school is that when it's time to file a lawsuit, good lawyers look at all the different options as to where a lawsuit can be filed. This happened in Arizona. Well, Michael Irvin's a legend in Texas. So his lawyers picked not Arizona, they picked Texas. And people would say, well, how can you file how can you file a lawsuit in Texas for something that happened in Arizona? Most states have, and I don't want to get too deep into the legal weeds here, but most states have very loose venue laws. What gives proper jurisdiction and venue over a corporation? And for most, it's as simple as whether or not they're doing business. So if there's a Marriott or any hotel with a different name owned by Marriott doing business in the county in Texas where this lawsuit was filed, you have both jurisdiction and venue there. Even if the thing didn't happen there, you can do it. So Michael Irvin, realizing I got a better shot in Texas where they all know me and they love me and where I helped win Super Bowls than Arizona, where the Cardinals fans probably hate me. I got a better shot in Texas. So I'm going to sue in Texas. And state court, for the individual filing a lawsuit, the individual who has the ties to Texas, state court is always better than federal court. And that's what happened here. Filed in state court, and he got some early wins. Got an order right away that Marriott has to name the individual employee who was allegedly the victim of some sort of misconduct from Irvin. And also got a win that Marriott's got to turn over the video of the interaction, if there is one. Because Irvin's got eyewitnesses that say nothing happened. So there better be a video that shows something happened or they got a problem. Now, the problem for Marriott of being stuck in state court where the judges are elected, and that's important. Federal law recognizes that there can be home cooking. You get yourself in a county, in a state, where the judge is elected by the local populace, and if you have a plaintiff who's among the people who vote and the jurors are the people who vote, 
things naturally get skewed toward the individual who's suing the nameless, faceless, out-of-state corporation that has no influence over the election of that judge. So federal law recognizes in certain specific circumstances, and one of them is called when there is diversity of citizenship, complete and total diversity. Plaintiff from one state, the defendants are all from another state. Reside, do business in, principal place of business of Marriott is not in Texas. It's some other state. Marriott is not a resident of Texas. That allows Marriott to remove the case to federal court. That's what happened yesterday. And again, I'm taking the time to explain this because I posted the story last night about Marriott moving the case from state court to federal court, and it immediately became our most traffic story of the day, by far. And going into Tuesday, it's the most traffic story of the day. So people care about this stuff. So here's, in a nutshell, what's going on. Irvin picked the best spot for him to start the lawsuit. Marriott's making the best move it can for itself by taking the lawsuit to federal court. Because in federal court, the judges aren't elected. They're appointed for life. And you may get lucky. You may get yourself a judge who is politically inclined based upon party affiliation, based upon which president appointed that judge. And this is a very real part of the analysis. Is this person more inclined to interpret and apply the law in a way that is pro-plaintiff? Or is this person more inclined to do it in a way that is more pro-business? And this is not a political commentary. This is a fact. Federal judges appointed by Democratic presidents, meaning that federal judges who were sufficiently moving and shaking in the Democratic political circles to get themselves in a position where, when it's time to appoint judges, the Democratic president picks you, those judges are more likely to issue rulings and apply and interpret the law in a way that is favorable to the individual who is suing the nameless, faceless corporation. Republican politicians who are lawyers, who are appointed by Republican presidents, the mindset, the overall political philosophy is more pro-business. It's just the way it is. Again, that's not a political commentary, and that may come as a surprise to plenty of people who are conservative but are also thinking, Why aren't they on my side against the big, nameless, faceless corporation? And when I was practicing law, frankly, I spent a lot of time explaining to folks this disconnect. But it's the truth, and that's the way it works. You can ask anyone who knows anything about how the political system intersects with the appointment of federal judges. Judges appointed by Democratic presidents, more likely to be pro-individual. Judges appointed by Republican presidents, more likely to be pro-business. So... That's the next step in all this. Who's the judge? Who appointed the judge? Will the judge be more likely to skew toward Marriott, more likely to skew toward Irvin? And it doesn't happen all at once. It's a little a little twist here and a little twist there, a little shading here and a little shading there, a ruling here and a ruling there. But it all adds up to it becomes harder for the individual if the judge was appointed by a Republican president and it's harder for the corporation if the judge was appointed by a Democratic president now. Now, that's not 100% across the board because sometimes what happens is when the judge gets that lifetime appointment, things change. Attitudes change. Reasoning changes. Mindset changes. Do a little research on what happened after Earl Warren became chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court because there was a dramatic change in his approach to jurisprudence that shocked and stunned those who put him in that spot. So, boy, this is really This is like history lesson and continuing legal education and you know this is one of the beauties of doing this 
where we don't have to worry about a break. I don't have to worry about shutting up and letting someone else talk. I could just go on and on about whatever it is that I think may be of interest. But for those of you who are interested in the Irvin case, and there are plenty of you out there, I hope you better understand why it is where it is and where it goes from here. And the judge who's appointed to this case now is going to be critical to which way this thing potentially goes. And look, it could settle at any time, but Irvin may be onto something here. We don't know. And, and I'm always reluctant to play the false accuser card because I really don't think that false accusations get made as often as people who are accused of wrongdoing think they get made. But we still have to account for the possibility that it was a false accusation because we know that over the course of human history, false accusations have been made. And it's very different, frankly, when it's one accuser versus 20 plus. That's one of the things we dealt with over the past two years with Deshaun Watson. At a certain point, there's too many accusers for them all to be lying. But for Irvin, there's one. And there's a chance it's false. We don't know. But I know this. Irvin is aggressively trying to prove it. And we'll see if he's successful. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. All right, I got some questions that I'm going to try to answer here. And as always, the PFTPM posse questions end up at the top of the stack. I'm going to refresh this just to make sure I have the latest and hopefully the greatest of the questions that have been posed today. PFTPM Posse wants to know if teams have to get permission from the player before doing a simple restructuring of the contract where they convert a portion of the base salary to a signing bonus to prorate it over multiple years. This dovetails with an item I posted earlier today where my position is it always makes sense to kick the salary cap can to future years because the cap's always going up. A dollar this year means less than a dollar next year relative to the total spending limit. The simple restructuring is... And I'm going to use the most basic example I can think of. You've got a $5 million salary for this year as a player. So that full $5 million counts against this year's cap. Team goes to the player and says, we want to take $4 million and turn it into a signing bonus. We're going to pay you a $1 million salary. And 
for veteran players, it's a little more than $1 million. Now it goes up every year. But you can move the salary down to the minimum. You take the rest, and you turn it into a signing bonus, and then you spread it over a number of years. That reduces the cap charge this year, and it pushes cap dollars into future years. That's the simple restructuring. The player loses nothing, and what the player gains is a check now for the bulk of his pay for the current year versus having it spread out over multiple years. And if it's non-guaranteed, you know, it's a nice benefit. I, I, I could have got cut by the time September rolls around. I'm getting all my money now in lieu of having to worry about maybe they're going to wake up one day and decide to, to part ways with me. So there's no real downside for the player. But players have to agree to it. And one thing that has become more and more prevalent in recent years there's a device in the contract that gives the team the absolute right to do that conversion if they want to. They just they just have to do it. That that avoids the potentially awkward request. You know what's in it for me if I'm the player? I I don't I don't want to do it. I want a little more money if I'm going to do it or I just you know I'm not real happy with the team and this is my way of acting up. This is my way of pushing back. This is my way of saying go screw yourself. So teams put that in there and it's not an issue. There were times in the past, though, where, where players would resist a simple restructuring. And it used to be that in order to move cap money from one year to the next, you had to do a more complicated restructuring. You had to have incentives of a certain type that were baked into the contract so that money would count against the cap this year and get credited to the cap next year. Because it used to be you either used the cap dollars or you lost them. You couldn't carry them over without some sort of creative accounting. You had to get the players to go along with it. Bottom line is, nowadays... Most smart teams put it in the contracts that they have the right to do it. And you'll see it happen a lot. Teams will do it. Deshaun Watson, for example, he's got a cap charge of, I think, $54 million for this year. I expect there'll be a restructuring of that deal. And I suspect that his contract gives the Browns the absolute right to do it without having to get his permission. PFTPM Posse again. Yesterday you said the Saints, when coached by Sean Payton, were at the bottom when comparing penalties called for and against them. Doesn't that add to the it's rigged crowd? How does it happen otherwise? I'm not one of those conspiracy people. Look, there's different layers and levels of rigged. And and I've been having an email exchange with one of our friends in the UK about this because after years of being an NFL fan, he's done because he thinks it's fixed. My position is it's not fixed because... I don't think they're competent enough to fix it. That, that's my Occam's razor approach to it. I don't think the NFL scripts or fixes the outcome of games because I don't think the NFL could pull it off the way the NFL wants to. And I also don't think the NFL could keep it quiet. All it takes is one person who knows about it to blab. I just don't think they're good enough to do it, frankly. But I do think some biases creep in. And the Saints have kind of been persona non grata. At least they were under Sean Payton. Now, whether or not a code red was ordered or whether it was just kind of went in Rome by osmosis, it is odd to think that there were multiple years where the Saints were at the bottom when you look at the penalties called on the teams that the Saints are playing. The chances of that just happening randomly when you consider working through the various staffs, you know, some throw flags, some don't. It's week after week. It's game after game. To get to the end of the year and say, we are among for multiple years the very bottom of the teams who have penalties called on their opponents. It's not rigged, but it suggests that there's a bias. And we've seen that in the past with the Raiders. Remember the Raiders were like 
constantly the team that had the most penalties called against it back in the days when Al Davis was a thorn in the side for the league office and suing the league office. So, yeah, and rigged, scripted outcome, no. Biases and prejudices that may cause people to throw a flag or not throw a flag, as the case may be, I can't rule that out. It's another reason for the NFL to button up its officiating process before Congress starts poking around or a prosecutor starts poking around or a federal regulatory agency is created to deal with these issues. All right. But again, I still don't think anything is rigged per se. All right. Uh, Buffalo expat, pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed yesterday's PFTPM. Thank you very much. Which has me convinced the best shows are you with Sims, followed by you flying solo. I know I can't believe I'm saying that either, but it's demonstrably true. And this is a guy that I think likes to likes to uh, uh, give us a hard time on Twitter from time to time. So anytime we convert someone on Twitter who has historically been a pain in the ass, maybe we're doing something right. Or maybe we're not doing something as wrong as we had thought. This is another observation or question from Buffalo Axpat. I think I like where this one's going to go. This was a question that was asked a few weeks ago, apparently, and I missed it. Do you have a fire sprinkler system for the barn? All that heat generated by arcade games and AV equipment housed in an old wooden structure is a potential recipe for disaster. Tell me you have at least multiple fire extinguishers on site. And I do. And there's a, an important reason why I do. A couple of years ago, I almost burned the place down. And I need to shoot a video of it. And I will tonight. I'm going down there tonight. I try to go every other night, every third night. Because I can't go down there and not smoke a cigar. I've learned that I just can't control. Once I'm there, humidor handmade by my nephew with 500 cigars in it, I can't resist. So it's like, you know, I, I used to be this way about candy. The only way I would avoid eating candy is to not have candy in the house. So as long as I stay in the house and don't go to the barn, I don't smoke a cigar. Tonight I'm going down there. Long story bearable, I'm going down there. And I'll do a video tonight of where I almost burned the barn down. And what happened was I I had a fire in the little wood-burning stove that you may have seen if you watched the video. If not, it's pinned to our Twitter page. And I must have had the door cracked open a little bit, and an ember popped out. And I didn't realize it, and I left for the night, and I came back the next night, and as I was getting the fireplace ready again, I looked down at the the area rug that we have on the floor, and there are tassels along the side, as rugs like that often have, and I noticed the tassels were missing. It's like, well, my dog hasn't been down here to like chew off the tassels, so what's going on? And I looked, and the wood <laughs> was scorched, and the tassels were burned off, and the rug was burned in. You could see where it was blackened. And, yeah, there was a slow-burning fire that never really took off. And if it had, the barn would have been gone. And I guess we would have just rebuilt it. But, man, that would have been traumatic. Because I used to have some stuff down there that can't be replaced. I have my grandfather's original naturalization paperwork from 1915 at Ellis Island. And I did a video last week of the Sean Payton play card from the Viking Saints game in 2018 and how he saw a play from a Patriots-Bears game and he used it and he sent it to me before the game saying, you watch, I'm going to use this. And he used it and it scored a touchdown and he called me at 2 in the morning and I was like, son of a bitch, he used it. But 
Uh, that would have been gone forever. And the other thing that is priceless down there that I do worry about, my dad's croupier stick. My dad was a bookie, and my dad also worked a floating crap game twice a week, Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, and I just thought it was normal. Dad doesn't come home till 3 a.m. on Sunday night and Wednesday night. That's just the way it is. So he had a stick that's got to be at least 100 years old, and it's awesome. It is awesome, and it's got a kind of flexible, like, you know, it, it, it's just neat. And you can tell when you hold it in your hands, you're holding history. That's down there, too. So we don't have a sprinkler system, but I do have fire extinguisher. And trust me, every night I'm down there, I make sure if we're running a fire that that door is shut, that there's no embers around, and I trust that the uh, the wiring from the other – like, the, the, we don't leave the video games on. We turn all the lights off, so – I, I'm I'm hoping it will be fine, but maybe the next upgrade will be that we put in some sort of a sprinkler system to keep the barn from burning down and to keep some pretty valuable items from being lost to history forever. These are always important. We, we like to get to the most important questions when we do one of these PFTPMs, but I like talking about the barn, and I like it that folks out there care about the barn. Anastasia Williams, could you see the Bengals trading T. Higgins with Joe Burrow getting an extension this offseason and Jamar Chase will get his in the next offseason? Where's the money to pay Higgins? You know, this kind of bubbled up a couple weeks ago. I think we talked to T. Higgins about this face-to-face at the Super Bowl. I I don't see him leaving. Now, he's going to be one of the test cases as to how much does he want. Does he want to break the bank? Is he willing to take less? You look at where the market's gone for receivers. You look at the fact that there are great receivers coming into the draft every year. Could they replace him with a younger, cheaper player who would be almost as good? And when Jamar Chase is getting all the attention, maybe T. Higgins' replacement would be almost as good, maybe dollar for dollar, even if the player isn't as good as T. Higgins. Between what Higgins wants and what it would cost to draft a guy in round two, three, or four, it may make good business sense. And those are the kind of tough decisions the Bengals are going to have to make if they want to keep Burrow and Chase together. There's going to be a tight circle of key players around them that survive, and they're going to be guys on the other side of that circle. And I think a lot of it depends upon what Higgins wants and whether or not the Bengals realize, you know what, we could trade this guy like the Packers did with Devontae Adams, like the Chiefs did with Tyree Kill, like the Titans did with A.J. Brown. But the challenge is... Once those guys are gone, what's your offense going to look like without him? The difference is they got Jamar Chase. So it wouldn't shock me if they do it. But we're going to learn a lot about what the Bengals think of T. Higgins based on how much they pay him, how much he wants, and whether or not they they just exercise their prerogative to move on and get some draft picks from a team that is willing to pay him huge money. You know, you also have to find a team out there that's willing to do it if you're T. Higgins, a team that's willing to pay you that money and trust that you're going to be as good without Jamar Chase there to to take up the kind of attention that allows you to be the Alvin Harper to Michael Irvin. And I'm not I, – I, this is not pejorative in any way toward T. Higgins' skills and abilities. But the cautionary tale, the ultimate cautionary tale of a number two receiver turned number one receiver is Alvin Harper because he was great with Michael Irvin when he went to be the number one guy. Not great. And there have been other examples. Peerless Price, who I think was the number two receiver – to Eric Moulds in Buffalo. Little little hazy, a little foggy. You'd have to look that up. But guys go somewhere else after they've been the number two. They become the number one. And all of a sudden, they're not. Hey, Juju Smith-Schuster. Antonio Brown leaves. They tried to make him into the number one receiver. Oh, wait. He's not fast enough to stretch the field. He can't be a number one receiver. So I, I think T. Higgins is good enough to be a number one receiver. That's what makes it more of a challenge for the Cincinnati Bengals. 
Everett M., if you were Joe Douglas, would you rather have Aaron Rodgers or Derek Carr for the Jets? Here's what it comes down to. What's my objective? Do I want to go all in and try to win a Super Bowl? Then I want Aaron Rodgers. Do I want to build something that maybe Derek Carr can help me be competitive, get to the playoffs, win some playoff games? Maybe I put enough of a team around him that we can get lucky and win a Super Bowl. Then it's Derek Carr. But look, one thing that I think we've learned over and over again, franchise quarterbacks mean everything to a team. Patrick Mahomes. The best of the best. Those are the guys who can make the difference in a big spot. Those are the guys who step up and make a big throw when the season's on the line. And yes, it's possible to have enough of a defense around a quarterback. You can be like the Broncos of 2015 where Peyton Manning isn't what he used to be, but your defense is so good it doesn't matter. That can happen. And that may happen for Derek Carr. But if the Jets would ever win a Super Bowl with Derek Carr, it wouldn't be because of Derek Carr. It's not going to be because Derek Carr makes some huge throw with a critical moment in a game with the season on the line. Now, hey, prove me wrong. Go ahead. Kirk Cousins proved me wrong. Jimmy Garoppolo proved me wrong. Jared Goff proved me wrong. These are the guys who I put in that middle category of good enough when everything's fine, but not great when the moment calls for it. That's what Derek Carr has to prove that he's capable of doing. And you know, he's, he's still fairly young as quarterbacks go. Maybe he can do it. But if I want to win a Super Bowl, ASAFP, it's Rodgers. If I'm looking for longer-term contention, it's Carr. Because the thing with Rodgers, we know it's short-term. We know it's a Band-Aid. Now, it's an all-in move, too, but Carr is going to be there, obviously, longer than Rodgers and give you more of a chance to try to build something that may be sustainable. <laughs> what a question from Sean Alvishow. Do you really think any company would let Jim Halpert work part-time while he's trying to start another company in Philly? That, that, that speaks to the later years of the office. And I, I've watched, by the way, and this is a – blatant and gratuitous peacock promotion the first six seasons now of the office the extended episodes are available and the extended episodes are great because there's another 10 15 20 minutes that wasn't in the original episode that you saw either on tv or in dvds or when it was streaming on netflix but the moment in season six when jim and pam get married and then after jim and pam have the baby that's when that's when it starts to go and by the time Jim is working for the sports marketing agency in Philly while he's working at Dunder Mifflin part-time or whatever Dunder Mifflin is, Sabre or whatever company runs it, Robert California shows up, Michael Scott's gone. I mean, that's definitely the expiration date. Once Michael Scott's gone, it's done, it's over, and I felt like I just kept watching it because I'd been watching it all along. But th- that's a show that really tailed off. They-, they rallied for the finale, but they really tailed off. And by the time Jim Halpert's working two jobs – it just it just wasn't doing it for me anymore at all. All right, another very important football question. Uh, let's see here. What else do we have? Coach Cusson, I'm well over a half hour, but let me just answer a couple more here. Do you think offensive line play has been damaged by the lack of practice from the past two CBAs? Well, offensive line play has been damaged by lack of contact, reduced offseason programs, reduced contact in training camps, and that's made the first month of the season basically the preseason for a lot of teams. Offenses are still a work in progress. Offensive lines are still working to be better. And this is one of Sims' theories that I agree with. One of the reasons we see offensive linemen on the edges get away with that half-second head start when they take a step back into their pass block set and why we see holding not called nearly as often as it happens during pass plays, it's a way to equalize. 
make the offensive line better so the quarterback is allowed to do what it is he's there to do and also not getting hit and getting hurt. So, yes, I do think it's real. An important helmet question from its only rights. Why did the league let Dallas wear three helmets this past season? They had the traditional silver, the throwback white, and they also wore the silver with the red, white, and blue center stripe. And that was a throwback to 76. I remember how cool that was in the bicentennial year when the Cowboys went from blue, white, blue to blue, white, red. Now, it's still two helmets. I don't want to get hyper-technical about helmet construction, but you can take that stripe that's blue and you peel it off and you put a red one on. That's what they did. So that's how the... The Cowboys were able to do that. It's always nice to have a nice, simple, easy question that I can answer quickly. All right, what else do we have here? Um, Phil GZ2, which team going into next season has the best triangle of owner, GM, and coach? I think it's going to be the Chiefs. What was that? They're trying to, they're trying to, they're trying to, they're trying to pull the plug on me. Let me finish the question here. That was just, it happens. See, when I'm putting the folks in the control room to sleep and they put their head like this, there's a chance they're going to slip and hit a button, and I think that's what happens. So uh, sorry to be putting you to sleep in the control room, but we appreciate Kristen in what she thought was a week off, having to sit and listen to me for, I don't know, 45 minutes so far. Okay, let me answer this, and then we're going to call it for the day. I think the Chiefs right now have the best combination of owner, coach, and GM. Because you look at how they draft and you look at the players they develop and you look at the sweet spot they've created with Patrick Mahomes where he's not demanding top dollar and he could and arguably should. These, you know, we're hearing about Daniel Jones wanting $45 million a year. That's Patrick Mahomes' money. Uh, Jalen Hurts getting north of $45 million a year. That's Patrick Mahomes' money. The best quarterback in the NFL and the margin is getting broader, frankly, is at 45 and the top is going to shoot past 50. That's good management of the team. And they bring in these younger, cheaper guys and Isaiah Pacheco and the defensive backs. And, you know, they, they get a steal in Kadarius Toney, a first-round pick who had issues with the Giants, no issues with the Chiefs. They know how to develop the players. They know how to get the right, right relationship with the players. They've got it working perfectly in Kansas City. It's one of the reasons why they're going to keep competing for and winning Super Bowls. And the other Super Bowl team, the Eagles, between Jeff Lurie, Howie Roseman, and Nick Sirianni, they got something special going on. Five years after, they had a formula that won a Super Bowl, different head coach, but I think they're going to be here to stay as well. But they do have some challenges. Both teams do. Every team does. But great teams, look, one of the reasons you're great, you got great players. Contracts come up, you got to figure out what to do. And how the Eagles and the Chiefs deal with their cap issues in the offseason will be significant. But I think more challenges for the Eagles as 2023 unfolds. That's it for today. Thank you, as always, for some of your time and attention. I know this is supposed to be a week off, but I didn't go out of town. So I'm happy to be here with you for a half hour, 45 minutes, however long it may be. We'll do it again tomorrow because no matter how slow it feels like it's going in the NFL, there's always something to discuss. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your time. If I didn't get to your question today, ask it again tomorrow. We'll talk to you Wednesday. Enjoy the rest of the
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.